1: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurg. Coming up on Forum, we'll talk about the roots of California's homelessness crisis. Inspired by a trip I just took to Boston, Massachusetts. I was there on a reporting fellowship, and we spent a day walking the streets and learning about the city's response to homelessness. And I was blown away. We walked blocks and blocks without seeing anyone curled up on a park bench or living in a tent. It made me wonder what's working in Massachusetts and what's going on in California. Stay with us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim. If you walk down pretty much any street in San Francisco, you're likely to pass someone lying on a street corner, maybe living in an RV, cooking outside of a tent. These kind of sprawling tent encampments are so ubiquitous they've become part of the landscape here. 56% of the the city's homeless population is living outdoors. Contrast that with Boston, where just 3% of their homeless population is unsheltered. We're joined by a panel of guests today to help us understand why these numbers are so different. We've got KQED housing reporter Erin Baldessari, Lyndia Downey, she's the president and executive director of Pine Street Inn in Boston, Massachusetts. Jennifer Friedenbach is the executive director of the Coalition on Homelessness in San Francisco. And soon we will be joined by Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg. Erin, I just want to start with you there's kind of an elephant in the room right the weather in san francisco is very different than it is in boston now when i was recently there and kind of came up with the story idea for this this piece it was 80 degrees so the weather was not a factor when i was in boston and i didn't see very many homeless people at all but obviously it is a factor for much of the year so is a weather a driving factor in these statistics
2: yeah i mean absolutely um you know, incidentally, before I was a reporter in Boston, before I was a reporter in California, I um, was a reporter in Boston for a number of years. And, uh, you know, speaking from personal experience and from a, a, a weak uh, California constitution, weather wise, you know, the whole uh, winter months I spent with my shoulders scrunched up and I can and I was living inside, you know, so I can only imagine folks who were living outside the, the type of bitter cold that folks experience. And. Um, It absolutely plays a role in what we see in terms of sheltered and unsheltered homelessness. Um, While I was a reporter there, you know, I was able to attend uh, what's called a point in time count, which is uh, a one uh, biannual um, count of people experiencing homelessness across the country. Um, And I had the privilege of walking uh, that route with a, a homeless outreach worker who was able to take me into places that um, you know I didn't even know existed. Uh, for instance, we went uh, into the subway system uh, along the train platforms and into some service areas, really into the bowels of the subway, to rooms that uh, only service workers for the the transit system use, and found people living inside there. Uh, we found folks who were um, living, you know, in in sort of sheltered areas that. Um, that are very not visible to to the eye that you really need a trained eye to see and to know about those spots. Um and so I think that there um that is part of it. Uh, folks who are escaping the cold uh will find places indoors where they can escape to that provide some sw- form of shelter. But it also, you know, the the bitter cold also has um Led to uh, what we know as a right to shelter in uh, various st- in three states or uh, three jurisdictions in um, the country: uh, New York City, Washington D.C., and Boston. And that is a very different approach than what California has.
1: And we'll get all into that in, in just a, in just a second. I just, Lindy, I wanted to just ask you, you know, straight out what I saw. You know, I was riding along in one of these vans that your organization offers, one of these Pine Street vans, and we drove miles at a time looking for folks and didn't run into anyone. And it was so striking coming from from San Francisco. So tell us a little bit about what the Pine Street vans do and what Pine Street Inn offers.
3: So we're an agency that works with single homeless men and women, and we provide street outreach. We run a number of shelters. We run a catering company that employs homeless people. And probably really the biggest pieces of our work most recently has been developing permanent supportive housing targeted to chronic people who are chronically homeless and long-term homeless. So we we do have a whole variety of of, of work we do. I, I, I would say one thing about the weather, because uh, as you all know, our census is done usually in January or early February, and it's it's very cold. And so the, the street numbers are typically lower. But Boston, typically, two to 3% of our homeless population stays outside. So even if you doubled that to 6%, we're still far below, I think, other cities. So even if you said, look, the weather is a piece of it, um you know you could double the number and we still wouldn't be close to i think some other cities and i think somewhat interestingly the outreach vans are part of strategy one i would say to really engage people on the street we started the vans because we thought people wanted transportation to shelter few people do but mostly the vans are working with people directly on the street. Uh, whatever it might be from medical issues to filling out housing applications. And it really runs the gamut.
1: It was impressive as well, because the drivers of the vans knew most of the folks that we saw on the streets by name. Now, part of that was because we didn't run into that many people. Um, But vice versa, the people on the street, you know, knew the the drivers and they had these relationships that were really impressive, quite warm, quite friendly, um, you know, buds. And they knew exactly what they wanted. Like, I want two packets of mayonnaise and I want my hot chocolate and I want my soup. And they were very familiar and very uh, touched by the fact that these vans arrived, I think, every day of the year. Is that right?
3: Yep. We're out 365 days a year. It's two vans. And um, we do take orders. You know, sometimes people will say, look, I need a new pair of sneakers, but I can't find a size 12. Or could you find me a, you know, a a winter coat that's different than what I have? Uh, You know, one of the blessings of having lower numbers is you do get to know people and you do get to build relationships. And I would say one other thing about our street numbers, you know, the right to shelter law in Massachusetts is for families only. It does not apply to individuals uh so we do not have a formal legal right to shelter for individuals we do for families we have worked very hard to make sure in the winter anybody who wants to come in can come in and to find the space for that but it's it's not codified in in the state law
1: what would you then credit for driving these numbers to such success and at least from what i read yesterday It seems like that even that two to three percent is still decreasing, like your numbers are still going down each year, which is incredibly impressive. What's driving this?
3: You know, I think the city has had amazing leadership. Uh, We've had amazing leadership at the state level where there's been a commitment to this issue. And, you know, we've had three mayors, including our current mayor and our previous mayor, who's now secretary of labor, who took this issue seriously, resourced it. The city has a plan and we, the providers are all part of that plan. And the plan is really focused on uh, trying to divert people uh, right away and prevent their homelessness at the front door shelter. We have what I call uh, bridge money to help people who are not homeless for a long time, but just financially need first and last month's rent and maybe a year's year or two worth worth of rent and some stabilization support. And then the, the group that we focus on at Pine Street and that the city strategy has been very focused on are those long-term stayers in shelter uh, and on the street, because in shelter in particular, when you place somebody who's in shelter 365 days a year into housing, you are able to meet new demand. And so we've had, I think, a, a very good turnover uh, because of that that kind of tiering system and, and, and a lot of focus and resources on the... Um, you know, on the folks that are homeless the longest, but it's been a city and state partnership. And I give the city a lot of credit and the state as well. We've, we've been fortunate. Um, our chair of ways and means uh, representative Michael Witz, has been uh, amazingly helpful in terms of thinking about not just the strategy, but how do you resource the strategy with the city and the state together?
1: Back in 2019, there was a, there was a count of, and apparently California had a shortage of affordable housing, 1.4 million uh we're short in terms of those who want an affordable house and and can't get it. Does Massachusetts have enough affordable homes to meet the demand there?
3: No, absolutely not. I think, you know, I saw something recently where you know the the demand like California has completely um outstripped the supply and we are I think the second or third most expensive market in the country along with San Francisco. I think New York is up there. So, you know, we struggle with some of the same issues that everybody else is struggling with. How do you build quickly? How do you build cheaply? We have a very tough zoning uh, process. We're we're a we're a housing developer, sometimes ourselves, sometimes with partners, and the zoning is cumbersome and long and uh, slow. And property here is really expensive. It's it's very expensive on the acquisition side, labor costs are high. So we do not. And and we we, we know both as a city and as, as a state, we're, we're not keeping up with demand.
1: Jennifer, I want to bring you into the conversation here, you know, hearing these statistics, hearing what it's like in Boston, some of their successes, some of the ways that it's working quite well between the city and the state and, and leadership. How does that sort of sit with you? What's your, your kind of reaction to hearing about what's going on in Massachusetts?
4: Well, uh... A little bit of jealousy, I guess. Um, <laughs> um, but I think, you know, for um there is some some differences in terms of poverty rates uh between the two states that are pretty substantive. And so I think Massachusetts has about a six and a half percent poverty rate and California has a sixteen and a half poverty rate. And of course, homelessness is a poverty issue. And so we're gonna see we're gonna see some larger numbers that way. Um, but that's also you know that can also be seen as a success of of the state of Massachusetts having having those lower poverty rates. And so I think, you know, for um we've really had a situation in California where, you know, we have a state that does have the tax base um, that could be tapped into uh to really address uh, these huge disparities between rents and incomes that are driving homelessness, and we have not seen the state investments, and, and you know, we we finally are, you know, the current Governor Newsom um, has been investing more than previous governors, uh, but it's all short-term, and it all requires local matches that may or may not happen, and uh, basically the municipalities with the, you know, with a much smaller Tax base to tap into have to take on 100% of the costs of um, of these investments over time, and so that's that's a problem. And I think if there was a lot more collaboration and um, working together between um, the cities and the community um, folks who are working on these issues and unhoused peoples themselves um, with the state, that we could uh, we could get a lot farther down the road. Uh, homelessness is highly politicized. Uh, You know, it's highly politicized here in San Francisco in terms of, uh, you know, people running on the backs of homeless people running on the backs of anti homeless measures, um, really not listening to unhoused community members in terms of what they need, Uh, and that has led, at least in San Francisco to a really a disastrous homeless system that uh, is really more about making it uncomfortable for people who are experiencing severe destitution than it is about really engaging them in services and getting them off the streets.
1: We've been talking about homelessness in California compared to what's happening in Massachusetts where they're having some success and where I witnessed there's not a lot of people living on the streets there. Uh, stay with us and we'll continue this conversation and try to get more under what's driving these statistics and why they're so different in these two places. We're talking about homelessness in California, where the vast majority of people who are homeless are living outside in vehicles, in tents, on the streets. Compared to Massachusetts, where all but 3% are unsheltered. And we're joined by Lyndia Downey. She's the president and executive director of Pine Street Inn in Boston. Merrill Daryl Steinberg from Sacramento, KQED, housing reporter Erin Baldessari, Jen- and Jennifer Friedenbach. She's the executive director of the Coalition on Homelessness in San Francisco. And we would love to bring in some callers and hear from the members of the community. Have you or a loved one had an experience of being homeless? We'd love to hear about that experience. Maybe are rising costs in your area making you worried that you could lose your housing? Or maybe have you worked with the homeless population? Maybe you have some lessons to share. Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can give us a call right now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I want to get more into the details of what's happening in California and in Massachusetts. But before we go there, Erin, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your reporting about what you found in Finland and the successes that they're having there.
2: Yeah. So, you know, um, uh, about a year ago, we we looked into this kind of question of, of a right to shelter versus a right to housing. Um, and we really focused on uh, looking at New York City, which was kind of the birthplace of both of those ideas. But While they have implemented a right to shelter in New York City, um, it was actually Finland and and, uh, Sweden that is kind of credited with implementing a right to housing. And this is the idea that the solution to homelessness is a home um, and that that home should come with very few uh, restrictions in terms of needing to be sober or having to have all your um, medications in line to deal with uh, a mental health issue um, or past trauma um, or other disabilities. The idea is that it's really difficult to um, become, you know, to 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 get sober or to deal with a mental health issue when you are also trying to deal with finding a place to eat and sleep that night. And so um, there's been a lot of In the uh, early 1990s, um, a homeless service provider in New York City came up with this um, concept. Um, At the time, the idea was uh, sort of the opposite of that. And so this was really a revolution at the time. Um, And uh, Finland really took it up. You know, um, in the 1980s, Finland looked a lot like New York City. Uh, The shelter system was kind of a revolving door for uh, the country's 20,000 homeless people. Um, and then in 2008, um, a four person working group got together and decided to really implement housing first. Um, and so uh, today, Finland, or I, I guess as of last year, Finland had about 5,400 uh, homeless people, which was a 40% reduction in homelessness since the housing first policy was adopted in 2008. And street homelessness in Finland is is almost non-existent. Uh, the country has one 50 bed emergency shelter, uh, and finish. Wow. Yeah, uh, you know, and and officials say that they want to be on track to ending homelessness in tw- completely in 2027. Um I think the idea really is is not simply that you have to just build enough housing uh, to house everyone who's homeless. Although certainly that's what Finland has been doing, but it's also about ensuring that. Homelessness is rare, brief, and non-reoccurring. So that means that you can quickly get someone into uh, an emergency shelter that's suitable to them, that meets their needs in terms of uh, a disability they might be experiencing, whether that's physical or a mental disability um, that uh, accommodates their needs and, and uh, addresses the the messiness of, of their, you know, of everyone's lives, right? Whether they have pets or vehicles or RVs or, you know, the the things that are valuable to them that, you know, children, children, exactly. Yes. Uh, So you want a shelter that can accommodate people's needs and sort of meet them where they're at. And then you want to quickly move them into a more permanent uh, long-term housing. Um, And, you know, it seems like Finland has uh, been successful in doing that. You know, there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's not apples to apples, right? You can't just, you know, Finland is a much more homogenous community, They have a completely different um, sort of social safety net. Um, So it's it's not, I wouldn't say it's fair to compare California or anywhere in the um, country really to Finland because they have such a different um, tax system and social safety net. Uh, But, you know, it is interesting when you look at this as a case study, I think because what Finland did is they really decided that this was going to be the approach that they wanted to to take, and they very narrowly focused in on that idea, and really did every you know aligned all their policies to implement that. In California, what I've seen is sort of um, a uh, um, uh, an oscillation between wanting a housing first approach, which the state declared in 2016 and said this is the approach that we're going to take. And then also having a backlash in, in, um, you know, when unsheltered homeless counts rise, right? I think during the pandemic, we saw a huge influx in um, unsheltered homelessness, or at least what we see visibly, partly because the CDC said that you couldn't disrupt homeless encampments. And so we saw homeless encampments grow and become um, more built up. Absolutely. And um, perhaps in the past, when they might have just gotten sweeped more frequently, uh, when, when people would have faced more frequent evictions from their uh, encampments. But, um, you know, the backlash to that has been a real crackdown on encampments. And, Erin, let me
1: ask you, where are those people going? I think everyone wonders. Like, I've <laughs> yeah. watched the whole Ashby exit, you know, go well, from like a city to, you know, empty. Where are those people going in San Francisco and um, the Bay Area?
2: know a couple blocks away more often than not um you know i've been following um the dismantling of the wood street encampment in oakland which is the city's was the city's largest homeless encampment and one of the largest in the uh the bay area certainly um about you know 200 to 300 people living under the 880 overpass in west oakland um and uh caltrans is right now in the final stages of um, evicting the residents there and a large contingent of them, so there were about three places where I, I saw many of the people from Wood Street go. There was another vacant lot in West Oakland, about a half mile away, where a number of people took up residence. There was another, uh, uh, just a another lot owned by the city that wasn't owned by Caltrans where people moved to, mm-hmm. and a second lot uh, across from a, uh, a park in, in West hey. Oakland where folks have been moving as well. So Many of the people from Wood Street are are really just being homeless somewhere else. You know, they've moved their RVs and their belongings. And, you know, when I asked them, well, you know, didn't the city offer you shelter? Didn't the county, like, what what did the city and county offer you? You know, they say that they have received offers of shelter, but these offers are for the Oakland's cabin communities, which are essentially tough sheds um, that sleep two people per tough shed. These are very sort of uh, makeshift, you know, semi-permanent structures, um, but-
1: Maybe not the most attractive option. They're not necessarily going to-
2: And they couldn't bring their staff. Um, You know, a lot of these solutions come with a lot of requirements and restrictions. And so, you know, if someone has an RV and they're pretty comfortable in that, they're not inclined and and they don't feel safe in a congregate shelter or in the options that are being offered to them, you know, very reasonably and understandably, they're not going to take that.
1: Right, right. Well, I want to, there's some really interesting comments coming in from from our guests, and and then I want to hear from uh, Mayor Daryl Steinberg. He's also on the line here from Sacramento. But just uh, could you, what Louise writes? Could you please ask your host or your guests? That's I guess I'm the host to explain the difference between unsheltered versus unhoused. Lindia, can you do that?
3: Sure. I mean, I don't know that there is an, a difference. I think it's a, just a matter of terminology. Right. We, we typically we use both in Boston, both unsheltered and unhoused. What I would say is we typically think of people who are unsheltered living outside on the street in an encampment or directly on the street. Unhoused would include people that we see in shelter as well, because shelter is not housing. And, and I think everyone knows that.
1: Got it. Thank you. And Vanessa writes, are people in Boston homeless for different reasons than in the Bay Area? For example, are people in San Francisco suffering from more mental illness or addiction, whereas in Boston it might be due to rising costs or addiction? I guess that's the same. She said addiction as well. Due to rising costs. D- do you have a sense, Lyndia, why people in Boston are primarily homeless?
3: I think the numbers across the country are quite similar. So if you look at the- our population in Boston, about 20% of the people who come into shelter or on the streets are what we would consider chronically homeless. They've been homeless for at least a year, or they've had repeat episodes over two years, and they have a disability. And those disabilities include, you know, substance use disorder, mental health. We have a lot of folks who have medical Uh, issues as well. Now, sometimes it's just medical issues. Other times it's embedded really in, in, you know, substance use and or in people's mental health because they don't have as much access to to medical care. So what I will tell you, and I've looked at these numbers nationally is everybody has a group that's kind of stuck in homelessness. That's about 20% of the population. There's another group in the middle that's homeless from three to six months. But, you know, 70% of the folks we see in shelter are gone within a month. So they resolve their homelessness pretty quickly. They reconnect with friends and family. Maybe they stay in shelter and save some money. Uh, maybe they save some money and can couch can couch surf for a little bit longer. It may not be a completely perfect uh, solution, but um, for a lot of people, they're 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 really inventive and they work really hard to get out of shelter.
1: Mayor Steinberg, I want to ask about, about funding because I think that's maybe a bit of an elephant in the room. So between 2018 and 2020, California spent $13 billion on homelessness in those two years across nine state agencies through 41 different programs. And then Governor Gavin Newsom signed a $12 billion funding package of bills in 2021 to tackle this crisis. So it does not, in my opinion, seem to be that we don't have enough money. But, but what is really going on there?
6: So... First of all, the governor in this legislature, California legislature, have done more to address homelessness than uh, any governor or legislature in, in modern history. I think that's uh, an appropriate acknowledgement. But what it tells us is that it's not just about money. It's about systems failure. Um, I guess what I want to say here uh, after hearing Aaron's report is right on Finland, because the law matters here. And there is no right to housing in California. There is no right to shelter. There is no right to mental health care. And frankly, there's not a national housing strategy. Um, I you know, note that uh, as a result of the Joe Manchin negotiation back with uh, what was once called Build Back Better, that uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of housing investments was dropped from that eventual bill. And so I think that um, what we know is this, when something is required as a matter of law, we tend to uh, put more urgency to it uh, and we tend to get better results. Think for a moment about something that is so uh, embedded in our culture that we never think about it. And that is every young child, every child has access to a free public education. And as a result, we have an obligation to build these things called public schools and we just do it. Um, housing is a pure economic commodity. It, um, If you're lucky enough to afford it, you afford it. If you're lucky enough to win the the, the, the supportive housing lottery and qualify for uh, a, a voucher and or a, a subsidy to live in a affordable housing or supportive housing if you have uh, special needs, great if not, you fend for yourself. Um, Think about mental health for just a moment, which is a a significant component of chronic homelessness. There is no right to mental health care in California. We we provide a right, rightfully, for those with developmental disabilities for their lifetime, and that's the right thing to do. For those with brain-based illnesses or who are dealing with substance abuse, there's no obligation for any level of government to be in these tent encampments consistently trying to help uh, serve and navigate people out of those encampments. And so I do think it is the the combination of more money, which we do need, and systems reform, where the the systems that are responsible for dealing with this crisis, this, this crisis of humanity, this public safety and public health crisis, we have to turn the law on its head and require these systems to do more than what we are doing now. Um, it, you know, and it, it's not when people talk about what's well, a housing issue or a mental health issue or substance abuse issue, homelessness is not monolithic. But I think we get hurt when it's either or, because we, we need both uh, dramatically more housing And we need the public policy to require the production of more housing of all types. And there are a lot of people who need mental health care. Housing first does not mean housing only. It means housing and whatever supportive services people need to be able to uh, stay in that housing. Supportive services
1: specifically, I mean, I've gotten many comments just as you're speaking about um, the overdose crisis and the fact that we really have, you know, some serious addiction issues that potentially are driving this crisis. Jennifer, can you speak to the role of of addiction and, and how it's playing out and, and, and the need potentially for services to address that crisis?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I think from, you know, from our perspective, um, housing is a key ingredient in um, in recovery, instability, and all of that. And so, when folks are, are having those issues, what we hear most from um, folks, and we did a huge uh, study with four different universities and um, very intensive uh, ser- interviews with about um, 600 unhoused folks uh, on these subjects. And what they would say again and again, and the portion of them who had struggles with substance uses, is that they you know they were getting churned through the system so they would maybe it would it would be really difficult to get a treatment uh, bed they would be doing better when they were in treatment and then they would be just pushed right back out onto the streets to start over again and uh, for folks who are um, in terms of the causes of homelessness it's a very small percentage of of people who their substance use caused them to lose their housing it's more frequently job loss catastrophic health situations uh, you know domestic violence you know these you know these kinds of issues that that happen to folks but as we force and i'm going to use the word force very deliberately here as we force people to stay on the streets for longer and longer then we start seeing rising rates of some of these other issues um, as folks mental health deteriorates because of the trauma of being outside They're more likely to self-medicate with drugs and alcohol, start developing those substance use issues. Um, We saw huge jumps in substance use issues during the pandemic um, of folks who were just in total despair and felt like the city was basically leaving them out there to die. And uh, so these these are issues that are solvable and they're absolutely solvable and they're issues that we created. Um, by our really bad policy decisions and our continued inaction. And, uh, you know, if we have, and I just, just one other thing on the shelter piece, and just to point out, um, to just to highlight one of the things Lyndia said is that prevention is really key, keeping people in their homes and making sure that folks don't become homeless in the first place.
1: Elections. And then
4: we exactly. are in shelter yeah. very short, and then we can get them into housing.
1: Right, right, the the eviction piece I know is so real. I mean, I have many good friends that have been evicted in this last year. Well, I think this is interesting. Roger writes, I have been a nurse working in the San Francisco shelter system for years now, and we're seeing homeless. We're seeing homeless with long-term cognitive deficits from mental illness, years of trauma, and long-term drug and alcohol abuse. Without long-term 24-7 care in that housing, these folks will not be able to safely live in permanent housing because they're not healthy. Until conservatorship can be re-examined and utilized, we are not going to see things change anytime soon. There are too many people on the street who are too ill to be there without significant help. We are talking about homelessness in California and comparing that to what's happening in Massachusetts where they're having successes. We'll be right back after this break to dig in a little bit deeper and maybe hopefully discuss some of the solutions that are working. Stay with us. We're talking about homelessness in California, where the vast majority of people who are homeless are living outside, maybe in a tent, maybe on a vehicle, maybe, or maybe in a vehicle, maybe on a park bench, compared to Massachusetts, where just 3% of their homeless population is living on the streets. We're joined by Lyndia Downey. She's the president and executive director of Pine Street Inn in Boston. Mayor Daryl Steinberg from Sacramento. KQED housing reporter Aaron Baldassari, And Jennifer Friedenbach. She's the executive director of the Coalition on Homelessness in San Francisco. and we do. To hear from you. I'm just about to go to calls. If you have experienced homelessness or you have a story about that experience, we want to hear it. Uh, maybe rising costs in your area make you worried that you could lose your home in the future, or maybe you've worked with a homeless population. Share those stories with us. You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org, or you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram, we're at KQED Forum, or give us a call right now, 866 733 6786 That's 866 733 6786 And I'd love to hear a question from Keegan in San Francisco. Thank you for your patience.
7: Thank you. Yeah, I've lived in San Francisco for about 10 years, and this was originally going to be a question, but I know that before the break, you talked a lot about all the money that's been spent, and I guess... For me, at least in the one little pocket of San Francisco, it seems that the public is very much behind any solution that would solve this problem. I know that we voted for, I think it was like Proposition C or something to tax on companies that work downtown. We voted on several bond measures. Um, It just feels like something that hasn't changed. And I know that your guests are saying that there needs to be some more political will and some policy decisions, but like the public is behind this. And so I'm I guess I'm looking for more. I don't. I don't know about blame letting, but just where can we actually solve the problem? Because it doesn't seem to be getting solved, and everyone wants to solve it. It's just a bit baffling to me. So maybe more of a comment than a question.
1: I think we can turn that into a question, though. Erin, what's going wrong here? Why are all those dollars not turning into solutions?
2: Um. Well, I, I won't, I'll let Jennifer speak specifically to Prop C because she's on the oversight committee um, for that measure and can tell you exactly where the dollars are going and the way that it's impacting homelessness in San Francisco. But more broadly speaking to the state as a whole, and I'm sure Mayor Steinberg could speak to this as well, you know, the the fact is, is that we really don't know, um, we haven't really evaluated the effectiveness of The state's approach to homelessness. Um, You know, there was an audit um, a year or two ago that looked at all of the, the programs that you mentioned earlier, Leslie, the 41 different programs across nine state agencies, and we don't really track, you know, which interventions are the most effective, you know, where People are going. Um,
1: Well, I think on that report, I mean, it was a scathing report, correct? And one of the critiques was that we don't have sort of an overarching agency sort of driving this whole thing. We've got 41 different programs across nine different state agencies. Mayor Steinberg, is the problem here that we don't have leadership sort of like one particular or like body that's driving, you know, how all these dollars are spent and making them work?
6: I think there's a little bit of a misnomer here. I actually think the money that's been invested is working. Um, I know, for example, in my city and county, since 2017, we've gotten 17,000 people from unsheltered status to permanent housing. You would think we would have a parade, but no. um, The problem has grown worse. Our point-in-time count has grown worse. What does that tell us? that people are becoming homeless faster than uh, we can get them off the streets. And that puts a real focus on prevention and early intervention, making sure that people who are living in fragile states, um, but who are housed, remain housed. Um, you know, you cannot ignore that in California, and I think Jennifer said this or somebody said this, this is largely an issue regardless of its its. Ultimate cause of systemic poverty, high housing costs, and people not being able to earn enough money to be able to make it, and then you're one—a broken down car, or medical appointment, or a high rent uh, increase—away from from uh, finding yourself in a oh my god, um, uh, but for the grace of God, there go I, and, and so. Um, The money has worked. I do think, though, that the systems themselves need to be much more coordinated. Cities and counties, for example, um, are not coordinating nearly enough. It's different in San Francisco. It's a united city and county. But cities, for example, do not have access to the Mental Health Services Act, which I authored back in 2004. It's generating $4 billion a year Mm. now in California. And uh, there are a lot of questions about excessive reserves and whether the money is being spent sufficiently on unsheltered homelessness. I believe again, that if the law required uh, us to produce more housing and the law required us to serve people living with serious underlying health conditions, including mental health and substance abuse, who are on the street, that the performance itself would be better. There are so many obstacles. Uh, Whether it's not in my backyard, whether it's bureaucratic hassles, whether it's high cost, and there is no counterweight in terms of the law that is sufficient to overcome a lot of what impedes greater progress. And, And so... We, we are doing a lot in California, getting a lot of people off the streets. But am
1: I, am I hearing we're doing a lot, but maybe we could do it better? We could streamline it more. We could make those systems work better.
6: There's I, no question. No question. We could get the money out faster. We could uh, re- require more coordination and, and actually be on an even more urgent mission to intervene uh, where people are at. Uh, let's, to California. Yeah, yeah,
1: let's hear from Joel because he's got the uh, the sort of the county perspective. Joel in Berkeley, you're on the air. Yeah,
8: so I'm a medical social worker. I've been working 40 years in Contra Costa County. Obviously, have met a lot of homeless people, and um, a few things. And I, I agree with with uh, Mayor Steinberg that there has to be a much bigger um, uh, uh, impact uh, or or, or um, bigger bigger. Uh, uh, approach to this problem because, okay, so San Francisco's housing its people, right? And you've got, and they're putting in huge amounts of money. So I've got patients that come through our emergency room and say, give me a bar ticket to San Francisco because they're, they're housing people and maybe I can get housing in San Francisco. Wow. So San Francisco could get everyone off the street. They'd get their 10,000 people off the street, but I would suggest that 10,000 more are going to show up because you don't have a, a, of an overall approach. And on the, large, on, the, on, the, on the largest stage, I would ask why we are not increasing Section 8 housing. It started getting cut in 1980 when Reagan became president. Now you wait for years, years on, on, on a list. You've got to basically wait for people to die in order to get Section 8 housing. But the other piece is, is that housing is so expensive and rents are so high and people are, are – are, it's easy to rent an apartment that Section 8 would have to pay more. To entice landlords to um, to to rent to Section Eight people, and but but we we just I, I feel like we're not dealing with it on on a large enough level, and it ha- can't be just each city throwing in a billion dollars a year. A year, it's not going to work.
1: Is that different in Boston, Linda?
8: No,
3: I would say the Section Eight housing, you know, everything everybody said is right. I think to, to the mayor's point, the systems piece, we have those same issues, right? The systems just don't connect. They're all very siloed. If you're trying to get someone from from short-term treatment into long-term treatment, if there's a gap in between, people often end up back in the streets and shelters. And so we don't have seamless connects between systems, nor do we have long-term treatment anywhere in the country, in my opinion, for mental illness or uh, substance use disorder and I and I mean long term. I've been doing this a long time. When I first came to Pine Street, we could get people in for to to thirty day programs. We could then get them another sixty days. Maybe we could get them a halfway house. Those things don't exist in the way they did, nor does Section Eight housing. And and so it's it's I we have underinvested in housing as a country, not just for homeless people, but across the entire spectrum. And we don't build enough. We don't find creative ways and I would say true in boston as well I, the other thing I, I would say is that it isn't just about the money it is about the systems our zoning system is cumbersome it's slow it is you know in boston like california there's a community process around zoning and that can really slow things down i have yet and we have 38 properties where we do permanent housing and with very few exceptions i have yet to go to a neighborhood. As part of the zoning process, and say we'd like to move formerly homeless people in and get a big oh. We're so glad you're here. Nobody says that. And you know, our mayor Wu, our mayor yesterday just announced that uh, uh, affordable housing projects will get priority one at our 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 city development agency, and also that these impact advisory groups will no longer be required for affordable housing. That is going to shave months and months and months off. Uh, approval at the zoning board. So even sometimes if you have money to build housing, you can't build it because there's so much opposition. And so you've got to think not just about the zoning system, the mental health system, uh, all of these other systems, the healthcare system that sees a lot of, in Boston, a lot of our hospitals see people who are homeless and they too are frustrated because, you know, they're just charging people when they don't want to because they don't have an alternative. So I, I agree that all of this is on point uh, and we're not that different. Our numbers are smaller. But we have some of the exact same struggles that everybody here has, has talked about.
1: I wanted you to be the diamond in the rough and be the you know the star that we could look at. And so we just do what Boston well, does, and then we'll, we'll solve this problem.
3: Well, but I think the systems piece is endemic to us as a country, frankly. I've yet to meet anybody doing this work across the country saying gee, it was really seamless. You, you know these are people these are real people with real lives and really complicated lives often and, and systems are not designed, my opinion, to be easy for people. You know I think about we have mass health, terrific program. If you don't work if you work sporadically, you get dropped from mass health. So we have people who for example, might have seasonal jobs and then they lose their mass health and then you have to re-enroll. Well, oftentimes, if you don't have an address, you don't know MassHealth dropped you. So we go to place you, and it turns out you don't have MassHealth anymore. Then we have to re-enroll you. Um, you know, It's it's not easy to do this stuff when you're living on the street. And if you have any compromised ability, it's almost impossible, which is why we really need people who follow people through every system. And if I had a dream, that would be it. How, How do we fix the systems, but how do we have literally someone who is going to follow you through the system and be your advocate from start to finish? until you're housed and doing well.
1: Fantastic. At least that's that's something tangible we can all hold on to do. Uh, thank you, Lydia. You're listening to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in for Mina Kim today. And I'd love to go to this uh, comment from Thad. He writes, with an approximate homeless population of 117,000 people in the state, I think I, the statistic I have at my fingertips is 160,000, but let's say somewhere between 117,000 and 160,000 people on any given day and $12 billion in spending to address homelessness, I calculate that's over $700,000 per individual. Just buy them all a house and be done with it. Uh, good idea, potentially, maybe not that easy as we heard." to do. Let's go to Robert in Pacifica.
7: Hi. Um, good program. I I find myself very much in agreement with your speaker from, from Boston. I'm a retired ER physician after 50 years in the Bay Area. Much of my work was done with uh, homeless people, as most ER physicians uh, do after a while. Now, early in my career, I worked in a mental hospital, and it was clear then, 50 years ago, as it is clear now, that there is a segment of the population that cannot take care of themselves. And as our population grows, we have proportionally more mental illness. I remember in this institution where people were cared for, fed, diagnosed, given medications that they had at the time, uh, that it was clear they weren't going to be able to survive on the streets. And now they are being made to survive on the streets. I think we gave up a very precious way of taking care of people, which is institutions that were not perfect but could be made better in light of what we know now. And no one, to my knowledge, has a right to live on the street and starve on the street and defecate on the street. And for all these billions of dollars we're spending, we could rebuild really good institutions, take care of, treat, diagnose, and finally house people, and we're not doing it. And I I believe there is an answer, but nobody wants to look at it.
1: Robert, thank you for your passion. Oh, yeah, go ahead, please.
4: Yeah, so into the earlier question around the money step. So it's a little, a lot of people do that in San Francisco. Look at our homeless budget divided by the number of people in the point in time count. To remind folks, that's a severe undercount and it's one. You know, you have to multiply it by about two and a half times to get across the course of the year. And most of the funding is going to housing of people who were homeless. So in San Francisco, the overwhelming majority of our budget is going to house, going to pay for the ongoing operating expenses of the 15,000 formerly homeless people who are now in housing. Um, And then the Prop C question that came up earlier, that got held up in court. Um, and is um, is now being rolled out very slowly. So it made it look like our budget was larger than it is. Um, we're very, very frustrated with the slowness of getting the money out to the street. Just as one example, uh, we we included in Prop C a number of hotel rooms for pregnant people and women fleeing domestic violence 18 months ago, and it is still yet to be added to contracts. So it's still yet to women being able to use that resource, and we're seeing women all the time that are that we're having to send back to the streets as a result. So there's that piece. The lock them up thing. I just want to comment on. You know, we in San Francisco in particular, and in other places, we had flourishing boarding care system. We've lost thousands of those beds. Um, We've lost, uh, we really don't have um, the level of um, care for people to be able to stabilize in housing. We haven't really given that a chance. And I don't think it's really fair to the people who are experiencing these um, to say, oh, we've deprived you of any assistance whatsoever. We're now gonna punish you by putting you in a hospital jail. And so um, that's, that's, that's a big leap there. And um, it's the most expensive and least effective way to uh, address um, folks' mental health issues. And, and so I just, I just want to push back on that because everyone just leaps to just lock them up. That'll solve it. That's not okay, you guys. That's not okay. People don't have other options. That's why they're out there on the streets. And the reason their mental health is so bad is because we're forcing them to stay on the streets without giving them the decent care that they need to be able to flourish and to be able to give back.
3: I, I I will say, and I, am you know, to, to the the caller's point, one of the things we've done in Massachusetts is created these very small safe havens funded through our State Department of Mental Health, and they are low barrier housing for people who suffer from mental illness. People really come in, no questions asked, you don't have to be on medication, you don't have to be compliant, but it is the starting journey for, for folks. And you know, when we when we started our first safe haven, we thought it would be permanent housing for a long time for people. There's on site support staff. There's engagement with with uh, clinical staff. And what was interesting is with the exception of a couple of people after a couple of years, people wanted to move on. They felt stabilized. They wanted a room of their own. And we had a couple of people who got back in touch with family and, and moved in with them. So I do think there are other options other than institutionalization that we need to take a really hard look at, because we in Massachusetts don't have a commitment law that would ever support that kind of institutionalization, not anywhere close. And so we've had to take a much more uh, low barrier approach around, hey, we have a room, you want to come check it out and see what you think, and then we'll take it from there. And those, and, and we have a, a very high retention rate in the, in those those units. Everybody was... Was formerly homeless. I think we're upwards of ninety percent of, of of tenant retention in those safe havens, and it's another model. I think we should be looking at nationally.
1: Really quick, and then and then we have to wrap our show up. I just want to know. Several people have asked, "Does California have more homeless people than anywhere else because we're just a warmer state?" Like are most people coming from out of state? Really quick answer, Mayor Steinberg.
6: I think uh, the weather is a part of it, but I I think it's the high cost of living um, as much as anything, and. Um, Again, until we um, drive uh, policies that uh, provide some sort of right to housing or legal obligation for various levels of government to meet the demand, um, the obstacles to building more housing are going to continue to impede.
1: And just be too high. We've got 20 seconds. i got to wrap this show, y'all. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much to Lindia Downey from the Pine Street Inn, Mayor Daryl Steinberg from Sacramento, KQED housing reporter Aaron Baldessari, and Jennifer Friedenbach from the Coalition of Homelessness. Thank you all. Take care. Have a good day.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
8: Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone?